Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off? Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. It may be hard to imagine now, but this pandemic we're all still living through, it started a little over a year ago as a puzzle. You know, at the end of December, there were reports out of China and out of Wuhan that there was this mystery pneumonia that was uh, sickening dozens of people. This is Hong Kong-based Wall Street Journal reporter Natasha Khan. Close watchers of emerging infectious diseases were all asking themselves and asking each other, you know, what was this? What is this mystery pneumonia that's happening? What information do we know at this time? In early January 2020, the Shanghai Public Health Clinical Center, led by Professor Yang Shen Zhang, was one of the research teams looking for answers. The team set to work sequencing the virus to find out its genetic code. Thanks to dramatic improvements in genetic sequencing techniques, it didn't take him months or even weeks. It took him about 40 hours. The team discovered it was a novel coronavirus, only the seventh to impact humans. The Wall Street Journal broke the story about the virus and about the sequencing. Just to explain, the sequence is basically a chemical instruction manual. The genetic code tells the virus and the human cells it hijacks how to make itself. Kind of like how a series of musical notes, creepy musical notes, make up a piece of somber music. Except in this instance, the finished product is a nasty coronavirus. So the team in China had this code, this manual, that tells us what we need to know about the makeup of the virus. But as the Wall Street Journal reported, the Chinese National Health Commission, a government agency, issued an internal notice to laboratories. It forbade them from publishing information about the new virus without government approval. But Zhang and his colleagues, including Professor Edward Holmes at the University of Sydney, ignored these restrictions. By January 10th, two days after the journal reported on the virus, the researchers released the genetic sequence to an open-source website called Virological.org, an epidemiology discussion forum. And they announced the publication via Twitter. The release of that genome was absolutely pivotal to more or less everything that's happened subsequently with this pandemic. This is Jeremy Ferrer. He's the director of the Wellcome Trust, a UK-based global charity focused on health initiatives. It was absolutely crucial that information was in the public domain and it was shared collaboratively with everybody around the world. Ferrer had actually taken to a corner of Twitter, commonly called Science Twitter, back in early January to demand that the SARS-CoV-2 genetic sequence be made public. And he was one of the first to praise Professor Zhang after his team shared the sequence on an open access site. But why is this so important? Well, sharing the genetic sequence jump-started the search for a vaccine that Natasha Khan says began the very day that sequence was published. Once the sequence came out, they were able to sort of immediately, on January 10th, start looking at a vaccine for this uh, virus. And, And so it's sort of just been quite extraordinary to see the convergence of 
information and technology and sort of what open source sharing can do. Um, at the same time, I will caveat that there are, of course, questions about other information that you know wasn't disclosed potentially at the same time. Another reason it was important. Viruses mutate or change a little bit all the time, and those changes show up in a virus's RNA. Having a sequence allowed researchers to track and pinpoint the mutations that followed. That can be vital to tracing different variants of the virus, and it can inform vaccine development. Kind of like how we have different flu vaccines every season, the virus changes and researchers have to tinker with the formula. And in addition to speeding up the process of creating a vaccine, Ferrer at Wellcome Trust says the pandemic also changed how scientists work, what they work on, and how that toil is recognized. For the first time, I think, in my life, since going to the moon almost, this has dominated the news agenda. Uh, science and scientists have been on the front page of newspapers and television and the rest of it, and it's put science into a different space. But with the spotlight comes more scrutiny. And this transformation to making research openly available, more collaboration, speedier research results, and faster dissemination of vital information, it brings up some thorny issues for the scientists themselves. Like, how accurate are these hastily prepared manuscripts? And who gets credit for overlapping work? Who corners the rights to discovery? From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, how COVID-19 changed the way scientists work together and possibly the way science will work in the future. Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off for the company, its investors, and for CEO Mark Zuckerberg? Over time, I hope that we are seen as a metaverse company. And I want to anchor our work and our identity on what we are building towards. Meta's trillion-dollar business and how we use the internet could hang in the balance. Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. The pandemic shapeshifted everything in 2020, including the way we work. But while many businesses were slowing down, scientists were switching into high gear. Thousands of biomedical researchers saw this as their moment. This is what they'd trained for. Like the rest of us, though, they were a bit hamstrung. For a time, they couldn't even get into their own labs that were shut down because of social distancing regulations. When they could get in, many academics halted their own experiments to redirect their focus onto the virus. In some cases, rival labs regrouped and became collaborators, and scientists from different fields joined forces and adjusted the way they worked. One such pair to make this pivot is Michael Betts, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Department of Microbiology, and John Wary, director of the Institute for Immunology at Penn. Should we start? You want us to start recording? Uh, that would be great if we could all start recording. Betts's focus had been on the basic science of how the body fights disease. Wary has concentrated on the body's immune system, how it responds to chronic infections, and can sometimes develop dysfunction in diseases like cancer. Last March, Betts reached out to Wary after attending a board meeting to discuss how his kid's school district was going to deal with the pandemic. 
And I had been telling the school education board, who, who are not infectious disease specialists whatsoever, that this was going to be bad and have a major impact and that they needed to take this very seriously. And I walked out of that meeting and I texted John and I said, we have to get on top of this now. And John basically texted back, I've been thinking exactly the same thing. I was on a trip just when all the lockdowns happened for the first time. And Mike texted me and said, uh, you won't believe what we've got to do here. Wary says those texts were the genesis of their close collaboration. It instigated something that I think uh, we've never done before together, which was a, a project and a process of uh, sort of emergency response science. The pair joined up to study how different people reacted when they got sick with COVID-19. They interrogated the same patients and shared clinical information. The two spread the research workload out among other staffers, collecting samples, performing experiments, logging the data. Beth says other researchers beyond their labs got involved in the work as well. We essentially took over unused uh, or or closed lab space because of COVID and turned that into a a huge effort uh, of processing samples and material coming in. And we got volunteers from multiple labs across campus to come in and, and help with that effort. In the process, campus hierarchy was sidelined. Wary says senior researchers were doing menial lab tasks that juniors would typically do because simply it had to be done. We all dropped our day jobs. We all sort of re-engineered everything we were doing to address uh, wherever our expertise could be applied to understanding the biology of COVID-19 disease. And now we're working together with people outside of our area Uh, in clinical medicine, uh, vascular disorders, um, all kinds of things that would, I never would have uh, really, only if I needed to would I have contacted these people. Whereas now it's just, it's just happening because it has to happen. Um, And it's really been because of this, for me, it's been because of being, being able to work with John When they started their research, the literature on how COVID-19 symptoms manifested was limited. Doctors frantically reported what they had, but that was just anecdotal patient responses. Doctors had little actual data. They weren't sure how the disease would play out in various patients, so they had to guess at what treatments might work and which wouldn't. Wary and Betts designed a way to quantify patient responses to the virus. Their analysis platform looked at multiple types of white blood cells taken from COVID-19 patients and identified three dominant immune response patterns. In one case, the immune system is hyperactive. In another case, it's actually massively under-responding. And the implications of this are that when you take a drug that might suppress the immune system, that might be really beneficial on some patients, but it actually might harm others because their immune response hasn't gotten started yet. And so I think, you know, one of the questions we wanted to ask is if we could match the pattern of the immune response to the clinical features and use that to inform how we might treat individuals rather than all COVID patients. So instead of being far removed from patients, these two researchers were in active discussions with people involved in specialized patient fields in the hospital. Matching patient immune response patterns to clinical features gives doctors vital feedback that helps them make clinical decisions about how to treat patients, like deciding whether or not to administer steroids. 
Wary and Betts wrote up two joint papers on their findings that were published in the magazine Science Online last summer. Patient responses to COVID-19 are clearer now because of their joint partnership. This is just one example of researchers collaborating and working outside of their traditional focus areas. Of course, in 2020, there were thousands of collaborations like this taking place around the world. But it wasn't just academic researchers teaming up. Commercial labs were also reaching out to establish joint ventures with scientists and with each other. Up next, the COVID collaborations between science and business and what they could mean for the future. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. COVID-19 didn't just make unlikely bedfellows out of some researchers. The virus was also the impetus for a string of strategic alliances among top pharmaceutical firms. In some ways, this wasn't new. Pharmaceutical firms have a history of teaming up. These industry connections, even with rivals, can be forged out of a crisis to get a drug to market quickly, or because shareholders and profit motives force companies to focus on impact and outcomes over their own process or basic science. But Wall Street Journal healthcare reporter Joseph Walker says last year, those alliances took on a new intensity. He spent much of 2020 covering Big Pharma's response to the pandemic. It usually takes several years or a decade or more to develop a single drug or vaccine. And here you have, you know, many of the biggest names in the industry racing to develop multiple vaccines, multiple drugs in months. Early on, Walker got word that an informal consortium of pharmaceutical R&D heads, many of them scientists and physicians, started meeting informally on twice-weekly Zoom calls, discussing the pandemic, swapping theories on the virus, and even alerting competitors to potential leads. The head of R&D at Merck calling up uh, the head of R&D at Glaxo to say, hey, we noticed in some of our lab tests that one of your compounds performed really well in these uh, test tube experiments against the coronavirus. You might want to check it out. Though not directly related to those informal discussions, some of the biggest names in the industry did end up partnering on COVID-related projects. You may have heard of some of the names involved in these collaborations. GlaxoSmithKline, Sanofi, Amgen, Eli Lilly, Moderna, Merck, Bayer and CureVac, just to name a few. And of course, what's become one of the most famous collaborations to date. I think the big one is uh, Pfizer and BioNTech. The makers of the first COVID-19 vaccine to be given emergency use authorization by the FDA. Pfizer is um, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world one of the oldest, most well-known, and BioNTech is not that. It's a German company that I think very few people have heard of, but who happen to have been working on some very innovative genetic uh, technology, messenger RNA, 
and um, they hooked up with Pfizer pretty early on to essentially combine the, the scientific research and the innovation coming out of BioNTech. Pfizer brought its world-class expertise in manufacturing and getting drugs to the marketplace, something BioNTech could likely not have accomplished so quickly alone. It's one thing to develop patents or, you know, new drug technologies in a lab. And like, really like an almost entirely different thing to take it out of your academic lab and do what is necessary to gain regulatory approval with the FDA and other regulators, which, you know, has to do with manufacturing and running clinical trials with tens of thousands of people and so on and massive logistical uh, challenge there. It's like working on a giant jigsaw puzzle made of complementary parts. You have cutting-edge expertise. We have regulatory prowess. You have intellectual acumen. We have manufacturing capabilities. You can imagine a small startup partnering with a pharma giant making sense under a lot of circumstances. But last year, there were cases where industry competitors joined forces. That happened with U.S.-based biotechnology company Regeneron Pharmaceuticals and their COVID-19 drug. And so Regeneron has developed this drug independently, but in order to manufacture enough of it to get it to as many people that need it, it's had to uh, partner with one of its, uh, actually one of its biggest rivals, uh, Roche, um, and uh, and a subsidiary Genentech in, in San Francisco to make the drug. And Regeneron also partnered with an academic researcher. Instead of the company looking for the latest work out of university labs, he came to them. My name's Jim Wilson. I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I run the Orphan Disease Center and the Gene Therapy Program. Professor Wilson is a gene therapy pioneer. For more than two decades, he's focused on gene therapies that could treat rare diseases. But like so many other researchers, last March he pivoted to COVID-19-related projects. Wilson started thinking his gene therapy technology could be deployed to engineer patient cells that could produce antibodies. That is, they could make proteins that can lock into the COVID-19 virus and neutralize it. So he basically thought he could make a preventative treatment for the virus. So I was in search of the antibodies, and I learned of the work being done at Regeneron where they were developing antibodies against the coronavirus as a treatment, whereas my approach uh, would be to use those genes as a um, a prevention. And I was quite impressed with the work they were doing, and they were very interested in working with me, and that's how the collaboration started. This work is still going on. Wilson says he and Regeneron are waiting on the results of another experiment expected to be completed this month. Wilson and the university received support from Regeneron for the gene therapy program, according to both the company and the university, though exact figures have not been shared. In the past, these delicate partnerships between university labs and pharmaceutical firms often held up potential collaborations, or universities were less picky about how much they got in return for their intellectual muscle, says Wall Street Journal reporter Joseph Walker. Universities typically make their money the easy way, right? Um, you know, tuition or government grants and um, endowments and contributions from their alumni, et cetera, um, by licensing their technology, you know, uh, taking that stuff out of the lab and then handing it off to the business people. But the pandemic resulted in at least one high-profile collaboration 
between the University of Oxford in the UK and AstraZeneca, in which the university held out for more specific demands. Oxford's Jenner Institute is prominent among leading vaccine research centers. Walker says it's been dedicated to vaccine research for more than a decade, making it a much-coveted dance partner during the pandemic. Oxford was one of these places where they happened to very, very early on in the pandemic have what looked like a promising vaccine candidate um, at a time when, you know, most people were not prepared um, to develop a vaccine for this virus we had never heard of before. And so they were in a, in a, um, in a very strong position in terms of finding a partner in industry to help them develop and then uh, distribute this vaccine if it worked. Unlike the messenger RNA vaccines perfected by Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech, Oxford's vaccine is DNA-based. In some ways, it's a more traditional approach. But the lab also came up with an innovative method of inoculation. Walker says the university knew its worth, and so from the start of negotiations, Oxford leveraged its prowess to ensure it would have a more active role going forward. And so in, in this case, I think the Oxford people, um, some of whom had um, you know, started a, a, a small company of their own to, to develop this technology, um, were very, very, very keen to not just be cut out of the whole process at the beginning and to uh, maintain their voice and their role and their um, rights, so to speak, um, as this thing got developed. Oxford was also able to make some very specific demands to AstraZeneca. The Oxford people were very adamant uh, that the vaccine not be sold at a profit, as we know typically happens in the pharma industry. And that was a concession that they did get out of AstraZeneca, where AstraZeneca committed to making now, I think, three billion doses around the world for rich countries and poor countries and at cost, you know, for the cost of, uh, of making it through the duration of the pandemic. And they're really, I think, the only company that's committed to do that. In an email, a spokesperson for the University of Oxford confirmed that both partners will initially operate on a not-for-profit basis and that any royalties the university subsequently receives from the vaccine will be reinvested back into the university and its medical research. The Wall Street Journal has reported that the Oxford-AstraZeneca partnership became strained after questions were raised about varying doses that were administered in some of its vaccine trials and other irregularities. The vaccine has since been approved in the UK. I asked Walker if the Oxford-AstraZeneca partnership might be a precedent for future collaborations between the pharmaceutical industry and academia going forward after the pandemic. Yeah, it, it may be. You know, I think, um, look, the story is still being written as we speak. And I think that without a doubt, um, Oxford has kept their name in the conversation. And I think that if this had been a typical sort of partnership where they just licensed out this technology to AstraZeneca, you never would have heard of Oxford again, because that's what happens with virtually every such case. Remember that the search for the COVID vaccine was able to start so early in January 2020 because of one research team's decision to release the SARS-CoV-2 genetic sequence on an open source platform. This was unusual. See, traditionally, biomedical research, in fact, most scientific research, is wrapped up in a culture of private enterprise, sometimes even when part of the funding comes from public sources. 
Labs often work under the direction of a single principal investigator, a figurehead capable of securing hefty funding sources for costly labs and equipment. But after working hard to be the first, which usually means being the fastest, the lab often has to go through a long process before their findings can be published in a prestigious peer-reviewed journal. The ensuing full-on public health dilemma of 2020, though, helped to strip away that culture, says Wall Street Journal science writer Robert Lee Holtz. In the pandemic, we don't have time for credit. We need to find treatments. We need to find cures. COVID-19 laid bare the failures in the system with piercing clarity. They include the peer review process that can take months or even years, and the reviews that are done by anonymous colleagues who are working on their own stuff and are basically unpaid. Plus, the journals are pricey, even for well-endowed academic institutions. So vital data, experiments, and scientific breakthroughs can remain ensconced behind a paywall, difficult to access. Hote says the pandemic was able to jumpstart a sea change to open source publications and servers and information sharing that was already happening among younger researchers anyway. This is a group steeped in breakneck modes of communication. I think that now there is a generation of younger scientists who have grown up. It's not the advent of computers or the advent of uh, new problems, but a fundamental uh, sea change in how we communicate. And you know, social media has its place in our personal lives and has transformed everything from, you know, streaming your television program to how you date. It's had that kind of impact on the sciences where it has made transparency and speed of communication paramount. So what does that look like? Well, during the pandemic, thousands of data sets and manuscripts were made public on what are called preprint servers. These are places where researchers can upload their raw data or manuscripts quickly while they're waiting to see if the paper makes it through peer review. This big database of ideas and information is kind of like having a library where everyone takes their notebooks and just drops them off. Now, these preprint servers do screen for plagiarism, but otherwise anyone can upload. There are no editors, no gatekeepers, really, and they're open access so anyone can read them. Preprint servers have been around for a while, mostly for math and physics, but for biomedical research, there's been a surge of papers published for the first time as open access preprints during COVID-19. By September 2020, there were at least 61 public preprint servers, and about a third of them were launched in the last 18 months, most of them having to do with medicine or life science-related matters. And there were thousands of preprint manuscripts on COVID-related science published to those servers. According to the research database site Dimensions that tracks publications, a total of about 257,000 papers were published about the new coronavirus from the end of December 2019 to mid-January of this year. And of those, more than 38,000 were preprints. This open access undoubtedly aided some labs that were able to review data and manuscripts more quickly. And that is different. It's a fundamental, and I do believe, generational shift in how these technologies are used to share 
information. But there are concerns about the quality of the work appearing on those open access sites. The speedy process can call into question the accuracy of the data and results and also bring up questions regarding potential conflicts of interest. And while many scientists are capable of deciding for themselves whether a paper is trustworthy, not everyone has the time or the capacity to know a field well enough to make that call. Adam Marcus, the co-founder of Retraction Watch, an online journal that tracks scientific retractions, says it's too soon to tell whether preprints are causing a dramatic increase in faulty papers. And retractions can take a while to materialize. But a fair argument can be made, he says, that a few retractions are a small price to pay for the immense flood of knowledge scientists produced about this virus in just over a year. But after the pandemic is over, oh, imagining that time, will this openness last? Researcher John Wary at the University of Pennsylvania says, yes, based on his experience, some of these changes are here to stay. So people involved in thrombosis research, cardiovascular folks, are now talking and doing experiments side by side with immunologists and physicians on the front lines of, of putting in intubation tubes are calling non-MD basic immunologists on weekends, asking what we think about the patient that she just intubated that day. So I think those kind of interactions, um, which are wonderful things, I think, I think we're gonna see some of them persist. This sort of idea of a more integrated view of where science fits in the overall medical enterprise. But there will still be that sticky question, who gets credit for discovery? The whole system in the past was founded on teams being first to publish. They had to be first to get the credit. In the before times, the siloed researcher working alone in their lab and guarding their intellectual property was the norm. And this is what was rewarded by society, says Frank Wilczek, Nobel laureate, physics professor at MIT, and Wall Street Journal contributor. You either get to be a professor or you don't at some institution. You either get a Nobel Prize or you don't, and so on. So uh, at the end of the day, yes, you can work together, but the credit you can't dodge the credit assignment problem altogether. Wilczek received the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2004 for figuring out the theory of the strong interaction, one of the four basic forces in nature. He says, in all the sciences, there's a tremendous premium to being perceived as first. So if you discover, let me put air quotes around discover, discover something that later is really basically true, <laughs> even though your experiment was not a convincing evidence for it, you might get a lot of credit for making the discovery. Whereas if you're wait and try to be more careful, somebody else could do the same thing and, and get, uh, get the prize. But this new way of working has blurred the lines regarding which teams get credit for which discoveries. Last year, science Twitter broke out in nasty arguments if a team failed to assign proper attribution to another lab for their work. It matters less, perhaps, during a pandemic. But it is a fundamental question society will have to answer, says Professor James Wilson at Penn. It's a big, big issue. And, um, and it's something that we've struggled with in the, in the academy. 
It's all about individual accomplishment and credit, uh, which creates silos, you know, for sure. I think it has to change on multiple levels, uh, one of which is at the very core of the academy, which is the way in which we appoint, review, and, and promote faculty. And that is the recognition that being a contributor to a team in which there's a uh, very important advance is more important than a smaller advance uh, in which there's only a single scientist involved. I think that's really changing and uh, not changing fast enough. So what will scientific discovery look like in the future? A free-for-all of social media sourced preprint research rapidly building off of itself? Or a return to the ivory tower of guarded solutions? If society doesn't play the science lottery, we can't possibly win, says Nobel laureate Frank Wilczek. The more open the process, the more chances to play. In my reporting for this episode, researchers told me they want to keep this new collaborative spirit alive and build on the momentum it's achieved since the pandemic began. But they say to do that, we will need to develop alternative ways of measuring success, one that allows for collaboration and new rewards for achievement. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping-Carter is our deputy editor of The Future of Everything. Our fact checker is Maddie Bender. Sound design for this episode is by Sarah Gibble-Laska. Our producer is Casey Georgie. Kateri Yoakum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. And I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>